This is the Right Way Podcast. Right Way Podcast. The 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 Right Way Podcast. Hi, I'm Greg Woodland, and I'm here talking to Samuel Elliott on the Right Way Podcast about my rural crime novel, The Carnival Is Over. Yeah, thank you so much for the introduction to tonight's episode there, Greg Woodland, the guest of tonight's episode, of course, speaking with the voice you're now hearing, which is the voice of Samuel Elliott, the host of the Right Way Podcast program. So again, yeah, thank you so much for Greg uh, Woodland for introducing this episode, given that we were discussing his second novel, uh, The Carnival Is Over, which is a continuation of the characters in which Greg created in his first published novel, The Night Whistler. Uh, but Greg's background is descends from screenwriting and filmmaking. Uh, he's worked and collaborated and made several award-winning films, as well as being a script script consultant, script doctor for a number of productions as well over his uh, his storied career. But yeah, we were discussing the second in his uh, continuation of the series, The Carnival Is Over, uh, which centres around people, uh, recurring characters from The Night Whistler, including Hal and a host of others. But yes, there's a another seemingly seemingly uh death by misadventure deaths that take place kind of act as the inciting incident there's something else as well which i don't kind of want to talk too much about but yeah huge thanks to greg woodland for talking to me on the program tonight about the carnival is over so while we're all in a big round of applause mood please give a big round of applause to greg woodland discussing with me on tonight's episode his second published novel the carnival is over Greg Woodland, thank you so much for joining me on the Right Way Podcast program this evening. How are you doing? Terrific, Samuel. Pleasure That's to be here. Awesome. That's what I like to hear. So you've listened to a few of my episodes now, Greg. You know what the question is I always like to ask. It's a good icebreaker. It's a good way to, you know, kind of connect like that. And with yours, it's particularly interesting because, I mean, with the carnival is over, it's sort of a follow-on from events that happened within the Night Whistler. So I wanted to know where the idea first originated for the carnival is over because in the acknowledgements you mentioned, I like the sort of terminology you used that the, it's, it's like you mentioned it's writing a sequel is like going home and visiting old friends again. So I thought that was a nice way of putting it, but I wanted to hear from you as to how it all started. Give us a lowdown. When I was first pitching the idea of the night whistler to the publisher, well, not the idea because they'd read the manuscript and liked it, even though there was work to be done on it hmm. to um, the senior editor of text publishing, um, I was asked, did I have a follow-up in mind, a sequel? And I brashly said, yes, I do. And I had been thinking about it and I knew I didn't want to go back to 1967 when the first one was set. That was very much its own kind of beast. And I, I wanted to set it a few years on. I wasn't sure exactly when, but I knew it. I wanted the kids to be a bit older and maybe on the cusp of adolescence um, or perhaps even a bit more than the cusp. And um, so, yes, I knew there'd be a sequel. And I said that not only would there be a sequel, but there'd be a sequel to that sequel. And um, I, I had an idea for the next one in line, the third one in line, but I wasn't really clear about the second one. I knew when I wanted it to be set roughly, I wanted the kids to be 17 or 18, something like that. And um, I wanted it to be related to a different kind of crime altogether. I didn't want there to be a bunch of serial killers in this little, little town because that's not really how it works in most regional New South Wales towns. Um, and, but anyway, I uh, 
one thing that happened was that the publishing date for my first book was put back nearly a year. And I was quite frustrated, but I thought, let's turn this frustration into useful energy. <laughs> and so I decided it's time now to really start digging around in what's going to happen in the sequel. Mm. Um, so I went to the New England. My brother, I had a brother who was then living in Armadale, and I stayed with him for a couple of weeks and began researching in earnest there. And my research began with a few days at the Dixon Library in Armadale, poring over the old uh, microfiche records mm. they've got of all these regional newspapers because every little town in the New England area had its own newspaper, regardless of how small it was. Well, not how small, the very insignificant ones didn't have one, but any any town big enough to have a pub and a town hall had a paper, a newspaper as well. And so I went through all these records, just skimming through them and skimming, looking for an idea. And I was it started out a bit in despair because there were no big crimes. I wanted to kind of take a large crime, something that had happened in the area, and fictionalise it and kick off from there. I like to, you know, start with with something real and use that to inspire what's happening in the book. It's exactly what I did with The Night Whistler, which began with an incident from my, my family's past growing up in, as a kid uh, in South Tamworth. Um, and it was about my mother's stalker. Well, I wanted, this wasn't to be a family incident, but I did want the kids in there, um, the two brothers, and um, one of the other kids, um, Lloyd, who, who's a bit based on some wild friends I had when I was a kid, uh, an adolescent. Um, I, I wanted that part of it to be a little bit semi-autobiographical, but I wanted the crime to be something different. And I went pouring over these old um, newspapers and I couldn't really find anything I wanted. There's a lot of crime there, but it's low-level stuff, burglaries, a lot of domestic violence in, in those days, well, I guess now too, and minor crimes and assaults and so on and drunk driving, that wasn't a big issue back in 71, mind you. Everyone was drunk driving, but very drunk driving where, where large accidents happened was, mm. was quite common. But I couldn't find the kind of interesting um, murder story that I could get my teeth into. And um, so um, from, from there, I decided to, I did find one article, which was really interesting in the Armadale Express. And I've, I've got it here. Uh, it's headed Disaster Day for Gyra. And that was February the 20th, 1981. I'd kind of been sifting through 10 years of newspapers, roughly, and fast forward on microfiche. And I found this one thing in the Armadale Express, Disaster Day for Gyra. And <laughs> I wondered what it was. Disaster Day for Gyra. What happened? An earthquake or something? But no, today, I'll just read from this, is a day of disaster for Gyra. The small township today loses its main employer, the New England Abattoir, which closes its doors this afternoon. It went on to say that the 120 workers that would be employed there would be out of work. And if that wasn't bad enough, nearly all the small businesses in town would be affected because they all bought on, small yeah. businesses in town. Um, so, okay, that was going to be a disaster of a day, they thought. And that was 81. So, okay, I didn't really want to write about an abattoir, but I was interested in 
what how what impact it had. And so I, I went from there to a number of the small towns, including Guyra, and I was sifting through hard copy newspapers in the Guyra Library, and I found, uh, this was 10 years earlier, in 1971, an ongoing story about some um, fraud, some allegations of fraud that had been perpetrated by people in the Guyra, in the New England abattoir at Guyra, according to people from other newspapers. You know, the Guyra people were very defensive about it, but other mm. newspapers claimed there was some fraud going on. So I dug around quite a bit more and I found this alleged fraud, they run the allegations mind at this stage, had gone on for well over a year, nearly two years. And people were making money out of stamping mutton as lamb. Yeah. They could then, then sell it for three times the price and um, make a clear profit of like 10 shillings a lamb. Now, that wasn't uh, that wasn't a whole lot. Actually, no, it was dollars. And it was dollars. We were mm. on dollars. So it was uh, about a buck a lamb, something like that. So that doesn't sound a lot. But when you consider they were, they were killing, slaughtering 10,000 sheep a week, and uh, this was going on for nearly two years, that's a lot of sheep. And even if they weren't, even if only a significant portion of them were actual actually stamped as lamb, that mm. was a lot of money. And it, it boiled down into a, a couple of million in $1970, which in oh. today's money is like $25, 30000000 million. Yes. That's a significant amount to um, involve a lot of people in. And so other things happened. Even then, I wasn't that keen. I, didn't, I thought it was amusing, but I didn't think that I really wanted the book to be about the fraud. That, for me, wasn't wasn't kind of enough. But I went sifting around further and I found, by sheer luck, looking around, I found reports of mysterious deaths, sudden deaths. Now, sudden deaths was a, was a euphemism for suicide back then. And there were a number of them that happened after the fraud allegations had been exposed and been found wanting. Um, I was curious to know what had happened. And there's no answers given to that in the newspapers. But in my mind, I began thinking, what if there's a connection? What if there's some connection here going on between these deaths? There were four or five of them. Now, I know sudden deaths occur a lot of the time in small towns during drought or flood when people's life goes to go to ruin. And, uh, you know, that's a kind of not uncommon um, situation. But uh, anyway, I began to uh, join the dots. And I began to think there's room for something really interesting here that's going on. And what if there was some kind of conspiracy of silence going on involving quite a lot of people in the town? And what if, if that conspiracy was broken, what would, what would happen to people? And I just pushed it a little bit and widened the gap a whole lot between fact and fiction. Wow. What a... Wow. In terms of like, I, I knew that there was obviously a lot of meticulous research that's gone on there, exhaustive research um, for it to, to kind of uh, align with your imagination. The way I kind of look at it with historical fiction, not just crime novels, I suppose, but historical fiction novels in general is the best ones I feel align with what's happening contemporary. And I know that we kind of as humans can repeat history uh, but I feel like if there's elements or if there's a if there's if there's a dynamic from a novel that you could remove from that and then it would be not 
jarring uh, and incongruous within contemporary times and it's quite well achieved. So for, for, for your uh, book, Greg, I was thinking more of a kind of like a cabal of power power brokers that kind of, um, you know, have a stranglehold over the town. I don't think I'm spoiling anything by saying that, but that's kind of my takeaway, I guess, from that. So we'll talk to you. You got yeah, I was going to say, I never wanted these stories to be set in a bubble, mm. you know, mm. 67 or 71 or 72. Um, I always see them as being a kind of microcosm for modern Australia. Now, maybe right. modern regional Australia or even Australia on a grander plan. Um, but I think a lot of the stuff that was going on in those small towns then hasn't changed that much from today. You know, there's still political... Sh- shenanigans going on with local councils there's still um uh racism and uh bigotry and xenophobia um in a lot of places including the city i'm not exempting you know our fair city um from this but um i just wanted it to be reflective of what happens in australia in in general um both both then and now Uh, you know, in some ways, I want to hold it up as a mirror and just see, have we changed? And if so, how much? And is this a kind of, this is not just a, a trip back into nostalgiaville, you know, uh, as much as I love growing up in the New England area, I grew up in South Tamworth and in Armadale as well um, for a period of about 10 years. But it's not just a nostalgia trip for me. It's It really is about... Um, using the small town is a fictional, fictionalised town I've got called Moorabool. It's a little bit of a, um, a kind of hybrid of towns like uh, Tenterfield, uh, Walker, Guyra, Yarralla, and um, rolled into one. And um, it's that small town thing where a lot of people know each other, but it's big enough for there to be strangers in it as mm-hmm. well. And, uh, yes, yeah, so... So, yes, I wanted to use the metaphor of the small town for Australia. Definitely did so. And I think like what you said, mentioning with the likening, the microcosm of the township to contemporary, I think that's certainly, and, and yeah, cities aren't exempt as well. I'm with you, with you on that one as well, Greg, totally in terms of that. I want to talk a little bit about, because I'm not sure if this was something that sort of happened organically or this is just my interpretation of it, but there's two different characters, instantly enough, they're uh, romantically involved at certain points, but... With, I want to first talk about the inescapability of one's character with Hal Humphreys and kind of through misadventure, stupid sort of uh, misadventure that I won't kind of spoil too much for for the reader, uh, kind of winds up having to work at the abattoir. And it's not just his current circumstances that kind of force him to deal with people like, um, what is it, not pelican shit, was it pelican shit? Yeah, Pelican Shit Pelican is shit. Yeah, uh, yeah. one of his bullies. Yeah, actually. yeah, having to deal with that. So, but he, got, he kind of also worries for the future as well. I mean, he has conversations with Valley Tenpenny about that as well, but he doesn't want to, he doesn't really feel like there is anything he can kind of do to correct his path. And I want to talk a little bit about that because I also want to talk about how Ellie herself, given it's a little bit different, but there's also the inescapability of her sort of circumstances as a person. What about that though, Greg? What do you think is uh, that our youth can kind of be, we seemingly feel that our youth or perceive that it might be defined by our misadventures and that forevermore will dictate our life? Is that something that you kind of thought about or is that just my weird interpretation? Absolutely, Samuel. The story is really about, partly about Hal's need to take responsibility for his actions. Mm. Um, like a lot of kids at the age of 17 or 18, 
who grew up in a small town, been there all their lives or even half their lives in Hal's case, the thing they want to do is get out, whether they want to go to a big city or another bigger town or just have adventures somewhere else. Um, they want to get out of their town. And for Hal it's and, and his mate Lloyd, they absolutely want to get out. They've actually planned an adventure at the start of the start of the book. You, you mentioned that. Um, they've stolen a car between the two of them. Now, Hal doesn't make a habit of this, but he's pretty good with hot wiring a car. He's got a talent for it. And his mate Lloyd is fancies himself Jack Brabham, a brilliant speed driver. And um, he's kid racer in his mind. And between the two of them, they've taken this car, but they've unfortunately been chased by a, a dog down by a fairly tenacious young cop, zealous cop, um, Constable Petrovic, who's chased them. And uh, I won't ruin the scene by telling no, the outcome, yeah, but the outcome is that, that, that they both have to pay for a car and they've got to pay for it by doing time as it were, not in jail, thanks to an intervention um, by a house friend, Mick Goodnow. Oh, well, he's not so much a friend now, but um, anyway, acquaintance, friendly acquaintance, and sergeant of police, he's gotten out of having to serve time, um, and so has Lloyd, and they're doing their time to pay off this debt they've incurred at the abattoir at the time. But Hal, as much as he sees that he's trapped he feels he's got to stick it out and he doesn't even want to get involved further down the track when he learns some, some information comes to him. Um, he has a dilemma. Uh, he wants to act on it as does his friend, Ali Tenpenny, uh, who's a indigenous girl who's really quite ambitious and keen to get away on her own way too. But um, while she wants to act, on this information, Hal's really reluctant to, because he knows he's in the poo, as it were, and he's stuck at the abattoir and he's on a good behavior bond. He doesn't want to make things any worse than they are. So he has a moral testing in this story. And to begin with, he's found wanting. Mm. Yeah, he's found wanting. And I mean, you cited in terms of um, Ali Tenpenny as well, and that was the kind of the, the sort of, uh, dovetail that I want to follow on from there as well, Greg, because I feel that Hal thinks that it's because of his actions he's defined and obviously he's found himself in quite a plight, uh, which kind of could potentially, you know, define his future if he can't somehow get out of it. So there's, that's that's his case. That's more of, a, you know, suffering from the transgressions previously. Then you've got Ali Tenpenny, an Indigenous First Nations person uh, who is brilliantly depicted. And I noticed as well that you mentioned throughout the acknowledgements as well that you've obviously consulted um Lots of lots of people from within the Indigenous First Nations community as well. Yes, in order to get that, in order to, um, to 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 deliver that authentic sort of character, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about particular. her as well because when I say inescapability of one's character, Ali does have aspirations to to you know go to uni and and that. But then there's one scene I found in particular, and I don't want to spoil it too much for the for the listener. But in terms of um, Maguire in the abattoir. And everything he says kind of is almost it's almost like a personifications of the most sort of pernicious sort of elements of society at the time sort of being voiced within the within this character, um, you know. And the abattoir itself, by the way, and, you know, I'm, it's interesting that you mentioned that you don't like, you didn't want to write about that. I myself wouldn't either, but it's it's beautifully written and, you know, and it's, uh, and it's often t- and how authentically and macabrely 
disgusting it is. But yeah, anyway, in terms of Maguire and what he says, like uh, when she's reading a book, I think he says something about you're 100 times more likely to go to jail than you are to go to university, etc. So tell me a little bit about uh, how this sort of ignited your imagination there as well, Greg, because you obviously con- consulted um, a wealth of people from within the Indigenous and First Nations community, and that really sort of shines through. And I want to hear a little bit about you talk about that. Um, I didn't tread lightly into mm. portraying Indigenous characters, but and I, I don't say I have any right to, but I felt I had an obligation to because in each of those towns that I lived, um, there were Indigenous people, and while there was a, a divide, there was an absolute race divide. I won't go as far as saying it was apartheid. It wasn't necessarily official, though in Armadale in the early 70s, it kind of was. There was only one town, uh, one pub, the black fellows could go to and the other 11 they were banned from. And, um, you know, I, I discovered as I lived there little by little and I would see Aboriginal people in the mall or, um, you know, uh, waiting to catch the bus or whatever or sometimes on the fringes of town and so on, I was surprised to find that very few of them seemed to live in the town. I know there were people that did live in the town amongst uh, white white folks that lived there, but a large number of them lived in um, a kind of shanty town called the Dump because it was in fact in the old dump on the edges of the old dump, and quite a, a lot of families, about ten or twelve families, lived out there in the, in the dump even even then, and they had some very basic accommodation had been built for them, but uh, things weren't good for them, mm. and um, and yet. Uh, on a number of instances in um, Aboriginal people in those towns. And when I hitchhiked as well, uh, as, as you did when you were young and reckless and stupid, but had, didn't have much money to pay for a bus or, or a train to go somewhere, you would hitchhike. Um, when I hitchhiked, occasionally I was picked up by Aboriginal fellows. Mm. And um, uh, there are a number of incidents that made me think these guys are being incredibly kind to me. I was shown kindness and I saw kindness displayed to other people. I thought, how come they're so kind to us when we are far from kind to them? We're yeah. treating them like third-class citizens, even though they it had been four years since the referendum had given them, had, had moved them out of being flora and fauna to being citizens in their own country. Uh, but even, even with that citizenship, things didn't seem to be getting that much better or it was a very slow progress. Mm. So um, I'm not, I'm about writing an entertainment. I'm not trying to write a documentary. I'm not trying to bang a drum yep. or to, um, you know, be didactic in any way. But I wanted the characters to reflect this in the way um, that I felt people would. And I also wanted the characters not to be, victims far far from it but to be people who had pride in who they were because even though it was hard under those circumstances when people were consistently telling you and the system was geared to tell you that you weren't you you know you didn't deserve this you didn't deserve to be there you didn't deserve an education you weren't good enough smart enough whatever people were still doing the best they could to um to be proud in themselves and to um, push their own causes. And, um, yeah, so I wanted the characters essentially to reflect that. And so the characters of um, in, in The Carnival's Over, Ali Tenpenny and her dad, Joe, oh, yeah. um, 
they're both uh, intelligent people. Joe's not very well edu educated, though he's very smart. Um, Ali's a big reader and, and she's got some plans. She doesn't know what she wants to do. She's currently working in admin. That's considered a massive, a massive promotion, a huge boon to a young Aboriginal girl to be an admin at the abattoir. It's massive, but she's bored out of her head with it and she wants to go elsewhere. She's, she doesn't know what she wants to do as yet, but in, during the course of her journey in the book, she discovers what she wants to do. And it's almost unheard of, um, you know, higher education for an Aboriginal girl in 1971, you know, very few, the fingers of people, the fingers of one hand people have yeah. gone through. I think Charles Perkins might've been the first Aboriginal graduate or one of the first anyway, to, to go to a university. So there weren't too many women going back then. But she wanted to, and I wanted her journey to reflect the um, the kind of activism that was going on too, and the and the new pride, um, not not really black power so much in mm. a little town like Armadale, though there were elements of it. They weren't quite. There was no tent city in a place like that, but they were affected by the people from the Canberra tent city, and they they knew what was going on, and. Mm. You know, there were marches even in the early 70s while, when I was there as a student. There were marches that um, First Nations people were, were having in the, through the town and so on. They were joined by some uni students as well, considered radicals at the time. Uh, to, um, they were trying to just state their case for fairness and for equality. You mentioned um, people wanting to be humans or be themselves and live their own lives and not being victims or, or cast as victims. And I think that, yep. that um, you know, that, that I always find that to be, you know, incredibly heroic in a lot of sort of circumstances, particularly when you're going up against, as I said, and I touched on very early at the start of the recording about cabals of sort of uh, untouchable people that are at the top there, you know, even within a small fictional town is memorable in terms of, of that. And I've always wanted to know, you know, what do you think, within your own imagination, what drives people to kind of uh, unite against these sort of monolithic sort of organisations or people that are seemingly untouchable and to know that they're almost certain to fail? What do you think it is about the, the human nature or within the context of your own imagination of these characters that makes them want to take a stand against the untouchable sort of uh, power broker types? I think the sense of injustice just finally becomes too painful and mm. too hard to bear. I think for a long time in a lot of these towns, and perhaps it's just human nature, perhaps in general, perhaps it's not just about those small towns, but but in certainly in the places I grew up in, there's a growing sense of unfairness in the sense that there are class structures, you know, even back then it was supposed to be the lucky country, the Australia of a fair go, mm -hmm. and, you know, um, nobody... It wasn't, we weren't like the Poms, God help us. There was no real class system here. And yet in a town, some of the towns I grew up in, there was a gentleman's club at the top and there were no indigenous gentlemen in that, in that club, I can tell you. It was a kind of white, um, successful white business peoples and squattercrats kind of club, club, really. Squatters, farmers, you know, people who ran the department stores and so on were allowed to join the gentleman's club. Not if they happen to be, perhaps not if they happen to be Lebanese or something, because there were Lebanese businessmen or the Greeks. There were Greek businessmen in the town too. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So it was interesting. It was the gentleman's club at the very top. They were generally white Anglo men of an you know older man, wealthy and powerful. And I think that 
a lot of people resented them, whether they were black, white or brindle. They, they knew that a lot of people weren't getting the trickle-down effect that mm. was promised to them. And, in fact, there was a large um, kind of unfairness and many, many injustices in the town, uh, also from poorer, poorer white people in the town too. I think a lot of the working-class people and felt they were getting a hard time too. So it does take some time, I think, to rock the boat, but people wanted to, and, and, and when enough people are rocking the boat, it starts to skip a bit of water. And I think that little by little, um, that's what started to happen in the 70s in a lot of these places. You know, you'll find today, the Armadale, of, even at the 80s, when I went back there in the 80s, I found that um, there, were, there were Indigenous men drinking in Pat's Hotel, which was barred to them when I was there as a student. And yet, you know, they were, they were, they were drinking in, in various pubs. I mean, not that that's a particular thing to, to aspire to, yeah. but it meant that there, there was more of a sense of equality mm. uh, and fairness going on that was absent in the early 70s and certainly in the 60s before citizenship. I love the way that you described it as um, in terms of people just getting fed up with the injustice that kind of compels them to act, and I think you're certainly spot on about that. Greg, the question that I always like to ask, and I think you know it, it's the crux of the show. It's the one that, um, you know, is, is probably the one that I'm always hinging on the response because no two are the same and it's such a different journey that all writers kind of embark on. Is I wanted to know if there was a time, and I know you've been a screenwriter, a, a screen, a teacher of screenwriting, a script doctor, all, all of that, a documentarian, a filmmaker, et cetera, et cetera. But in terms of your filmmaking and your widely journey, I wanted to know if there was ever a point where you yourself found yourself at a crossroads where you considered giving up for whatever reason. And if you did, what was it? Uh, what was the time or what sort of made you prevail to get past it? That's a good question and a big one. Um, I had been working in the film industry for probably 20-something years. Yeah, about, yeah, that's right, 20 years roughly, or a bit more. I'd been working as an amateur before I went to film school, but after you leave film school, you're trying to make it, or you're considered a professional, and you're trying to make it as your profession. You know, you've got your degree, you did your three years there training at a national film school, you know, you're taught at a high level and you've worked hard at it and you're expected now to be able to make a living. And yet it's hard. It's hard. And I never, I, I did ply my trade and I'm grateful to the many jobs I had. I was directing TV commercials and corporate videos and doc, um, training films for the Air Force and Army and government documentaries involving cops and high schools and things. I did quite a lot of that sort of thing for years. But I always was had dreamt of and always was a, a longer form writer director. I also directed a lot of short films and some of them did quite well and went to a lot of international festivals, all wound up on SBS, God love SBS. And the, some of them wound up on the ABC. And so they did get exposure, but I still had difficulty getting, um, getting a feature film up and running. And it, it was hard going. And um, I, I think I had five scripts optioned at various stages and uh, four of them looked really close to getting up. But one after the other, they fell over. And finally, two fell over roughly about six months apart, um, around about the time of the GFC, the global financial crisis, when I had the film that was the one I'd worked on for years. And it then had a good cast attached and had a veteran producer. It was looking really good. It had a lot of help from 
Screen Australia. It had the soft money in place. It just needed the last million or so of the hard money, the investors' money. Um, and uh, it, it all came to naught when the, um, uh, the GFC hit and Disney um, pulled, told its its people in Australia, we are no longer um, we're no longer uh, investing in Australian dramas uh, for now. <laughs> and so, a number of films went belly up, mine included. And uh, the uh, the House of Cards falls apart fairly easily when a major um, a major distributor pulls out. Mm. It's hard to get a replacement, especially when the GFC is on. Nobody wants to touch any of these things. So I had two of these things happen roughly within six or nine months of each other. And I was feeling pretty down. And I had a road rage incident just oh. after my 50, <laughs> 55th birthday or about the eve of my 55th birthday where somebody tailgated me coming into the uh, town where we lived, the village in the National Park, Bandina. And... Um, it was a scary thing because I was silly enough to w wave at him or put the hand out the window as you mm -hmm. do. Mm -hmm. And uh, he, he stopped. Uh, I yelled out at him, the, the dangerous driving mate, something like that. Very silly call on my part. And I wound up being shirt fronted by a very tall, very energetic young guy who I'm sure had a head full of ice at the time. Yeah. Um, it was quite a scary moment, but I stood up to him and, uh, I resolved to try and find him the day after and uh, I went looking for his car and I, it turned out to be the son of a friend of mine who I, no. who I knew. So I never could, I dropped it. I decided to take no action. I didn't want to lose the man's friendship and I understood, you know, the guy had his own reasons for behaving like a complete asshole and a bully. Um, but it kind of rattled me, the whole thing. And I began mm. to think, I've had it with screenwriting. I've had it, you know, uh, and and, um, and I was sick to death of it. I thought, I never want to write another screenplay again. I've had it. <laughs> I went on, I had to keep working. So I was working as a script editor then. I kept doing, I have an online script business. Thank God that kept me afloat. I worked as a script editor and assessor on quite a lot of um, people's projects, but other people's projects. I was happy to kind of, you know, take all, all care, but no responsibility, as it mm. were. And um, so after about six months, I began to really feel the urge to keep telling stories. And I decided I had this kind of flash where I thought, um, you know, I thought, why don't I write a book? Why don't I try writing a book? I don't need $6 million to make a movie. You know, it was an onerous task. It was heartbreaking spending years trying to get that money together and then finding just a luck of the draw or bad timing or whatever it was, um, your project would fall over. So I thought, I don't need that. To write a book can't be that hard to crack into the publishing industry, surely. <laughs> little did I, little, did I, little did I know. Um, but anyway, I did. I, I, so I took one of the scripts I'd been writing and I adapted it and uh, did a couple of drafts of it and then showed it to some people and they're interested. And um, uh, I wound up, think, I think I won a Varuna f a fellowship for yep. that one. And um, I wound up uh, pitching, pushing that one for a few years. Um, I came I had quite a lot of support for that one too, but I couldn't get a publisher. I got an agent for it briefly, but I could not get a publisher. I got some interest from uh, one publisher, but nothing stuck. So I, I picked out the script 
the one that had fallen apart that Disney Australia had wanted to do uh, a year or so before, oh no, several years before by now, several mm. years had elapsed, that had been so close to getting up but had not. And I thought there's a really good story in it, but it's not exactly crime fiction. And crime fiction was what I'd been reading a lot of at the time, a heck of a lot. I mean, I'd read crime fiction most of my life um, since I was a, a 11 or 12, I, I devoured uh, Al, Alfred Hitchcock's stories for late at night and all the Agatha Christie's and uh, um, Earl Stanley Gardner's or whatever was around at the time that I could get, um, I, would, I would eat up. And uh, so I was pretty fond of crime. And one of the, one of the writers I'd been uh, listening to and learning from had said, um, it's a mistake to tell young writers, well, not that I was a young writer, but emerging writers, um, to write what they know. Otherwise, you know, why would anything, everything would be autobiographical. And uh, better, she said, to, to write what you read, write what you, write what you like reading. And I thought that was great advice. And so I decided I would write crime fiction. And um, I love the idea of beginning with my family story, which I adapted into a screenplay. Uh, and that was a very largely fictionalised screenplay, but it wasn't quite crime fiction. I had a, a perpetrator then who was kind of unknown and mysterious and scary, but he, he, I wanted to push him further. I wanted to see what would happen if this was a, uh, a person who had no boundaries and was prepared to just about do anything to get what he wanted. Um, and I also felt that I wanted something better than the bumbling Keystone Cops that I'd written about in um, the screenplay because they were a bit like the cops that my mother had to deal with in real life. They were kind of fairly unconcerned about her, her plight as a woman who had a stalker then. The word stalker didn't exist back mm. then. Um, she called her... her a prowler or a nuisance caller. They called it a, even a snowdropper. Ah, snowdropper. Ah, I'm a snowdropper. Snow so I wanted to, a snowdropper. I wanted to take uh, in the Night Whistler um, that character and uh, push him into the realm of being a psychopath, really. Mm. And I needed a cop who was smart enough to catch him and stop him. And so that was going to be someone outside the run-of-the-mill cops that were at the small town station. And so hence uh, came up with the idea of a detective who'd been involved in big cases in homicide in Sydney, uh, the biggest one that I can think of from the area that we lived in. We lived in Shire in Bundina at the time. And um, the biggest unsolved crime was still the Wanda Beach the Wanda murder. Beach murder which yeah, yeah. I, I went went looking for cold cases from the 60s. And I, I obviously couldn't use that. That's been so covered. I couldn't, you know, I didn't want to call it the Wanda Beach murders, but I wanted that to be the inspiration behind the, this mm. case that had broken uh, Mick's spirit and that he'd had a falling out with. And in fact, that he was carrying a lot of trauma from and that he, and I wanted a cop who'd been, almost kicked out, but then reposted, given another chance and posted back as a, had to go through the system again and become a lowly probationary constable, having been a detective sergeant, which is quite high up as a detective. So that was Mick, and he was the low man on the totem pole, the fifth 
fifth wheel on the on the on the car at uh, Mirabal Police, and uh, he so he he ha- I wanted him to be the one who would solve this crime, and I wanted also him to have a personal link into it to be a him to be a victim uh, of um, this this perpetrator or one of these perpetrators that was going about in this small town. And uh, he had his dog stolen from him and fairly nastily killed. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, so that was at the start of that book. And uh, but by the time, so hang on, I think I digress here. You wanted no, to you didn't. You were talking. You're basically talking about like sort of your journey as to getting to where you were, Greg. And like the main sort of pressing uh, point that I wanted to kind of ask you about is, given that you spent so many, so much of your career writing screenplays. It must have been a huge adjustment to then jump into sort of long form fiction like that. How was that? How was that in terms of the widely sort of uh, ritual difference, or wasn't that different at all? I would imagine it'd be very different. Oh, it was different, all right. Yeah, <laughs> it was very different. I knew you had to make it bigger. The average screenplay has about twenty thousand words. The average novel, you know, the average crime novel, eighty to a hundred thousand words, pretty much. So, say ninety from twenty thousand up to 90,000 words I had to go. So I knew there'd be that you couldn't just rely on very short, pithy, telegrammatic descriptions, no matter how poetic they were, mm. you had to flesh them out. And it, and it wasn't just a matter of that and using lots of dialogue, although I did use a lot of dialogue in my early, my first draft or two. Um, it was a matter of what my the editors I did get later on, especially the wonderful... Um, Melanie Ostell, who became my agent as well. Uh, she was my first uh, editor. I, I won an ASA, uh, Australian Society of Authors, mentorship for my uh, fiction in 2017, I think. And I started working with Melanie in 2018. And she soon helped me whipped, whip this unwieldy script into uh, manuscript, into shape. Uh, it was then running about 120,000 something words. A lot of words, because I had kind of fleshed everything out. But she still said, although I had way too much stuff, I didn't have enough world building. And by world building, she meant the details of the world that we're in. You know, the sensual um, aspects of the world, the, the sight, sound, and smell, and taste of the world. You know, I had to get more of that in, and so. Um, as well as that, to get into the under the skin of the characters and into their thoughts, um, because in you know, and when you're writing a screenplay, really you can only show what a character's thinking by their actions, mm. you know, um, or by voiceover. You can use voiceover, and that's a fairly old-fashioned device, and we tend not to use it so much. But they used to a lot in film noir and in you know hard-boiled detective fiction movies back in the day. But so it was It was about fleshing out and building worlds, building the world of Moorable itself and the world of the bush, that the area, the crack in the world that Hal, young Hal discovered with his brother and that Hal wanted to explore and the world of Ali Tenpenny and her father, the world they inhabited. And, um, yeah, all these different, the world of a cop station as well. I had to do quite a bit of research for that as well, the cop shot. Uh, you, you can't just rely on Google. You can get a certain amount from Google and from the library, but ultimately you've got to go and visit some police stations and talk to some coppers and find out what it was like working back in that in those days and so on, which I did. 
And not only I didn't, I not only had to think about how to evoke these different sensual things. I, I went into the country to all these country towns again. I did a lot of road trips out there, and I spent a lot of time driving the back roads and walking the streets and lanes and alleys, uh, not alleys, um, yeah, country lanes, you know, yep. and, and these kind of dusty back roads. I, I walked around a lot and uh, just inhabiting the, you know, doing, just getting into the world of being a country person again, as I had been as a, as a, young, a, a young guy, as a kid and a, then growing up, um, you know, as a uni student and so on, then living in, post-uni at uh, Armidale. So I had to do all that again and get the vibe. But uh, but I absolutely loved it. I, I thought it was just so, so um, free as compared to the strictures of, um, of writing a script. You know, I mean, there's great things about writing a, a screenplay. I, I, I love doing that. And, and funnily enough, I will be doing that again because The Night Whistle has been optioned by a TV production company. Hey, that's so, what I want to hear. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> Fantastic. What goes Greg. around, what goes around comes around. I can't. I don't think I can actually mention who they are yet. They're quite a well-known production company, and we're likely to. Uh, my contract puts has me down to write the pilot episode, and depending on how that sits with them, I should write at least another one of the episode. It'll be a. Well, they're proposing a six by one hour TV series of it. Right. Um, so I'm thrilled about that, Samuel. I'm yeah, really that, thrilled about it. I'm, I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled vicariously because that is that is some really oh, fucking news, especially you. because um, the crux of what I got from from your writerly journey is that you kind of got into long form writing because you were not be able to make uh, the screenplays from within that medium into into film. So then you you <laughs> got into long form, and now. Yeah the long form uh, is working for the screenplay. So that's, it's all kind of eventually. It's kind of like what happened with George R. R. Martin writing a song of ice and fire because he couldn't, he couldn't get that stuff off the ground. And then suddenly it's quite popular. Yeah, certainly is, isn't it? Um, well, I'm not expecting anything as big as Game of Thrones. Certainly. I'm, uh, it's early I days. I don't know how I would but... deal with it, but, but it's early days and I'm just delighted. And uh, who knows these things I've been told by people I know, writers, crime writers who've had this happen to them that it'll take years, so relax. So I am relaxing, and I know how long it was it took to get things going when I was making, trying to make, get a feature film over the line, several of them. Um, so, yes, I'm just getting on with the writing of the books. You know, I find that you've got to like writing, and mm. I love it. I'm now in the, in the fortunate position where um, I tend to do it every day, and, and I love it. It's mm. just um, it, it uh, centres me, and it's become... You know, I listen to people talk about it, Michael Robotham and uh, uh, Chris Hammer and um, various other people, Candace Fox, would say, do it every day, you know. Mm. And that, that sounds like a huge commitment. But when you, there are days when I, you know, on occasion, rare days for one reason or another when I can't do it, uh, it doesn't feel right that I mm. haven't written for at least two, an hour and a half, two hours minimum and so it's a good space i think to be in to feel that you really enjoy that very much and uh you know as isabel allende says you can't just wait for inspiration as she puts it show up show up show up and then the muse shows up so i try to show up every day and i uh, do enjoy it i never feel rotten sitting down at the desk it's always a good thing Man. And um, I generally go away feeling better at the end of it too. 
that's what I like to hear and the journey itself and what you've done now and how it's can now develop so that couldn't get a screenplay off the ground before, but now the long form is now ensuring that the screenplay is getting off the ground. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing to hear. I'm very excited on, uh, on your behalf there, Greg, but look, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you on the program tonight. Thank you so much for talking to me. It's been my pleasure too. It was fantastic. Great to talk to you, Samuel. There you go, everyone. There you have it. That was me and Greg Woodland discussing his second published novel, The Carnival Is Over, uh, where murders most foul and all sorts of misadventures take place within Murrable uh, Township. So, yeah, huge thanks to Greg for discussing with me The Carnival Is Over and Talking Shop. Uh, it's always an absolute pleasure and privilege to discuss writing with uh, these endless procession of guests that I'm fortunate enough to talk to. But, yeah, huge thanks to Greg for discussing with me his second novel, The Carnival Is Over. Be sure to get a copy of that as well as The Night Whistler from Greg's publishers, the good folks at Text Publishing. Uh, but yeah, in the interim, huge thanks to Greg, huge thanks to you as well, of course, for listening to this episode, as well as what we like to call the ever-proliferating back catalogue of episodes there as well, extending back now, getting up to uh, two-something years. I'm on maths and too good. Uh, kicked off in November time, 2020. So yeah, getting up to nearly two years, kissing close to two years doing doing this, speaking to so many cool, incredibly talented authors and creatives of Australia and abroad. So yeah, uh, absolute roller coaster ride. I have one more guest coming up for this year and then that will cap off the year doing so in style uh, so that's coming up next week so I don't want to reveal too much about that yet but check the social medias if you haven't already uh, be sure to follow them and keep abreast of everything that's going on with the program as well as if you haven't already and you're listening to this on Spotify that follow button that you're seeing directly in front of your eyeballs there give it a cheeky click uh, so that you can keep abreast of all the episodes as they drop as well because I'm taking a bit of a break the rest of the year but then I'm sure I'll start with Gusto uh, next year as well perhaps with a limited sort of um, amount of guests because I'm just uh, not struggling I'd say to, to keep up with the amount of guests but but I've got to kind of focus on my own sort of long form writing as well I'm sure you'll understand and hopefully one day you'll get to read with your eyeballs some of my stuff as well that I'm always tinkering on rest assured every day I'm tinkering tinkering away on writing some stories that I really want you to read with your eyeballs one day hopefully sealed and bound in some sort of publisher professional sort of scape so yeah uh, keep on keeping on for me keep hope in your heart as I do as well and who knows what the future will hold because I can attest that the past year uh, has been absolutely insane in the most joyous way as to opportunities that have come along and how much my life has gotten better since uh, this time last year. So anyway, I digress. I'm definitely rambling now. But thank you so much for listening to this episode. Be sure to listen to all the others and stay tuned for more to follow. One more before the year is out. So get excited for that one coming out next week. But uh, in the interim, have a good day now.